Salam and welcome back to the TMB podcast. I'm your host, Salim Qasim. Now, last time we were talking about Palestine and the wider systems of oppression with Hasnain. Um, if you're new to the podcast, then be, please be sure to subscribe, like and share this with your friends as well. Um, today, we wanted to talk about Palestine again, but we wanted to focus on us as individuals, what more we can do, what we should be doing, especially considering our context of being in the West. Uh, we're far away from the conflict. And so can we have effective impact in bringing about change in Palestine and what's happening there? Um, and also what kind of actions we should be engaging in. Um, to help me through this conversation, uh, I have with me two guests that have come from the north. So thank you both for traveling. Um, firstly, on my far left, we have Sayed Amar Kazmi, who is a law graduate with a master's degree in human rights law. He's currently in the process of becoming a barrister. He used to work in Parliament and also worked on Jeremy Corbyn's 2016 leadership campaign. He now helps to run a left legal fighting fund which supports activists and protesters with legal support. He also researches the Zionist movement and the influence of the Israel lobby in Britain. Thank you very much for being here. And my second guest is Sheikh Jafar Ladakh. He's the Imam of Babel Ilm Islamic Center in Leeds, UK, an activist and author. His latest book is entitled Prospering. Is it Prospering? Prospering. Okay. Prospering through. This is going really well, by the way. Um, Prospering through the cost of living crisis, guidance from Quran and Sunnah. He was actually, we we had a TMV podcast, episode 30. um, And and the title of that was about whether Islam Islam was inherently a misogynistic religion. I don't know if you remember that conversation. Yes, I got in a lot of trouble for it. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm I'm glad. We've had a couple of good programs together. We had that one. And then we've also had a couple of uh, debates with some far-right activists, if you recall. I completely forgot about that. We've had a, this is not our first dance together, shall we say. So that was James Goddard, I believe. Um, And in fact, that was a really interesting conversation. It was yourself as a as a muslim imam and a far-right activist sat one-on-one yes. talking for about two and a half hours yes um that was a fascinating com- the whole the whole thing was was, was really he interesting. got to just ask anything he wanted and say whatever he wanted and there was no and what, what the real goal was was not to convince him but he brings with him a very far-right audience that yeah. ordinarily we can never reach and obviously we've managed to be able to reach an audience that probably wouldn't have heard some of the discussion points that we brought to the table. I had completely forgotten about that. I was thinking, oh yeah, we did that podcast because that was one of the first that we did um, in our old office. But yeah, yeah that times. was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'll put the links to both of those, I guess, in there. People can check those out. So thank you guys for, for, for coming today. I wanted to start out by um looking at what people are currently doing with regards to Palestine. And I think, um, you know, the the two most prevalent things uh, that are on the agenda for us in the West is protesting and and things like boycott the BDS movement. Now, I remember going to the Iraq war protest. um, And at the time, there were two million people, the largest protest on the streets of Britain. And it was incredible. Like uh, you, you had never seen or witnessed something like this in the UK. Just everybody coming out, and uh, it was very clear what the public's views were on the Iraq War. Now we all know the history. We all know what happened. We invaded anyway as a country, and and everything, all the fallout from there. This time around, we've seen the largest peaceful protest um, for the Palestinian struggle um, again in British history. 
depending on whose numbers you listen to, 300,000 or a million protesters on the streets. Um, and I, I attended, I, I, I lost my belief or faith in the effectiveness of protests a while ago, simply because I found that we turn up, we, we, we make our voices heard, we, we do what we can in, you know, in a peaceful and legal way, but it doesn't really matter what happens. Now, I went this time because um, I went to three or four of the, the protests at the beginning of, of um, all of this, um, mainly because I wanted my, my kids to be there with me. For me personally, my entry point into a lot of the sort of activism and caring about global issues stemmed from attending protests when I didn't have much basis for understanding the complexities of the geopolitics that surround all of this stuff and the nature of oppression and, and whatever else. So very basically, because um, I know Sheikh Jaffa, you were there and I believe you also attended some of these protests. Are they effective? Um, do, do you think there's a, a purpose in us taking to the streets week after week when we're clearly seeing that our elected officials aren't acting um, in our best interest, on our behalf, based on what we're telling them to do. I think before saying anything, it's worth noting that said Amar is a regular speaker at the protests in Nottingham. Um, and also I've spoken at the National Glasgow protest as well. Mm -hmm. So um, not only do we attend, but both of us have had opportunity to actually be sort of the, the, the chest thumpers and, and screaming into the microphone as well. So yeah. that gives our audience a little bit of grounding that we have a knowledge of the organization of it, the other types of speakers and how it's brought to the fore. Even even the issues of the policing around these events as well, we, we probably have a little bit of intimate knowledge of. Yeah. So I think that grounds the answer. And I'll leave it to said to start that then. Well, <clears throat> I mean, when we ever we're talking about the effectiveness of protests, uh, we have to always remember that protests are simply one tool in our arsenal. You know, they are part of, or they should be part of a multifaceted strategy. I mean, and also we have to assess what is it that we're trying to do by going to a protest. So have the protests been effective in stopping the bombardment of Gaza and liberating Palestine? Well, no, they haven't been. Uh, so they're not effective in that sense, but they are effective uh, in terms of some of the things that we can be doing here in Britain. So just in this uh, most recent uh, round of protests, they managed to generate a crisis within the British state. We saw various different um, parts of the government going to war with each other. We had Sola Bravman in the Home Office going to war with 10 Downing Street and uh, uh, Rishi uh, Sunak. And of course, we had uh, a fallout with the Metropolitan Police, something which is unprecedented in terms of what I've ever seen, uh, usually they go in lockstep with each other. We yeah. had the Home Secretary really putting a huge amount of pressure onto the Metropolitan Police to ban the protest without any sort of legal uh, backing. And there was some resistance there. And ultimately, uh, after Swada uh, Brahman unsuccessfully attempted to, to ban protests uh, at uh, Remembrance, uh, sorry, on Remembrance Weekend, she ended up having to resign. So I think that there are certain uh, things that we can do in terms of pressuring the government. Of course, the government did hold a very belligerent and strong line right at the very beginning that they weren't going to have any sort of support for a ceasefire. 
in the end, they had to climb down from that very rigid position, not to a position that we wanted them to go to, but they had to hold a vote on it. And they ended up supporting, you know, a so-called humanitarian pause. So you might say, well, that's not really effective enough, but clearly it has some sort of effect. Of course, there's also the fact that they give people the opportunity to uh, express themselves, to release their anger and to demonstrate you know, publicly in a very vivid way uh, that there is support for Palestine <clears throat> in this country. But I think, you know, there is also the alternative opinion, which is that, you know, this is just sort of navel gazing. We're not doing the sort of other things we should be doing because the inherent problem in the mass protest, the mass demonstration, yeah. is that you have a very narrow focus in terms of your demands because you want a very broad appeal. So you want to keep it as... Uh, you know, timid or tepid and non-controversial as possible. So these protests were really only geared around. We don't. We want. We want a ceasefire. Mm. Well, a ceasefire is not sufficient. We also want to have sanctions removed against you know uh, anti-imperialist countries that support Palestinian resistance. We also uh, want uh, deprescription of these so-called uh, terrorist organizations. And there are so many broader demands we could be having that. These protests don't cover. So that's an interesting point. And I think um, maybe I'll address this to you, Sheikh Jafar. But with regards to the the demands of a protest, you have thousands upon thousands of people that all have different perspectives, all have different wants. Some might want a ceasefire. Some might want sanctions on Israel. Some want the IDF to be labeled a, a terrorist organization. Um this is why, like I said, but when it comes to, to protesting, and, and obviously, um, as Amar mentioned, it's not the, the sole action that people can and should take, but rather one uh, cog in that kind of whole machinery. Um, but what's your experience been like engaging, I guess, with the organizers of protests and also uh, with the effectiveness of them? Um, you said in Glasgow, right? As an example, yeah. I, yeah. Mean, <clears throat> I, I think we, we could almost use these protests as a litmus test to see where people are on certain matters. If I, if I raise a certain question, I said, what is the tipping point in order for us to be able to have raised enough voice, enough righteous anger on a particular concern for a government to be able to actually make change? I'm just picking a number for the sake of it. Two million wasn't sufficient for us to be able to stop an invasion and occupation of Iraq and all the fallout that came from that. What would have been the number? Or what is the number that would have made them realize that this is going to cost us our electoral jobs, it's going to cost us our positions and so on. So when we see a protest of 300,000 or a million people, what we're saying is, is that this is the million people in this one city that were able to come out at this one day at this one time. But actually, if you think about it, there's so much more people, people who couldn't make it, people who are out of the country, people who had jobs on that day, they couldn't make it. So actually, you can say the number of support is greater. Then you have certain ways to be able to, again, um, qualify that. Um, for Palestinian freedom, there's something like 18% of the countries in support of either ceasefire or Palestinian liberation. That's not a that's not a small number in the country for 20% of the one country. Eight, one eight, eighteen yeah. percent of the country to, to do that. And actually that's greater than the support for the state of Israel, which is actually at sixteen percent according to some polls. So what I can see is that this is becoming 
or is towards the trend of a mass popular movement. That gives us as organizers, as activists, an ability to determine where we are and how much more we need to be able to do to be able to actually make a serious impact or a dent. So the way I look at marches, in addition to a space for righteous anger, to get things off our chest, to have a wider tent as possible, is also to be able to have a litmus test for what's happening on the ground and how much effectiveness and how much reach we've actually had in this issue. Now, on the other side, 18% sounds like a big number. 66% of the country still doesn't have an opinion or doesn't understand this topic sufficiently enough to have voiced a concern either way. That's really huge That's because number, because yeah. what we're actually saying is that after almost three months of ethnic cleansing genocide, and by the way, this is the first genocide that's being live streamed to us. Literally, people you're following on Twitter, you wake up in the morning and they've been massacred or their parents' house have been, a bomb's been dropped on. You've never seen this in your life. You've never seen a live stream of a genocide. So despite actually seeing all that, 66% of Britons still don't know who's in the right and who's in the wrong. They don't know enough about the history from 1945 or before or afterwards to make a judgment on which side, which side they stand on. Protests give me an opportunity to see the way the government is engaging, the way the public is engaging, the way activists are understanding the issue. And I think from our perspective, that's very, very important to be able to see um, some of the more finer inner details. What's really interesting, you asked about sort of policing. When I was um, in Glasgow, we were sort of at the very, very front of the, the march. And I was standing with some of the organizers and whatever. And the head of the police unit came up to us and said, it's not been authorized. This demonstration has not been authorized by the police. If something happens, anything, there's some violence, some, someone smashes a glass, a, a, a shop window, you as the organizer of this are liable for something else that happens. So we as the organizers and as the ralliers of that crowd of 50,000 people behind us, if one guy decided to do something a little bit crazy, mm. we were held liable. The police told us that at the front. Wow. So the point I make is, and I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later, protests are also a litmus test for how much people are willing to do. Because not in every country, but protests end up with violence. Sometimes people break into, sometimes police come at you with batons, with pepper spray. We've seen it, how it turns very quickly. We don't know. So you're actually seeing a level of commitment that the ordinary person would not normally do. They're sitting in their chairs, and that's not a bad thing. I'm saying people are sitting at home, but they've come out for a cause. So I don't belittle in any way, shape or form what protests do. But as said, Ammar said, this is the very, very beginning. Uh, there's a, a quote from Loki in his latest song, which I just find beautiful. He says, clear, it's going to take much more than thousands to march, more than a speech, more than a poem, more than a track of music, going to take more than a sit down with Basim Yusuf. It's going to take more than a podcast to liberate Palestine mm. from uh, occupation and genocide. But in no way, shape or form is this a small event. The Quran says, Allah wants to see you like a compact wall. God wants to see you like that out. So, um, you know, the, these things are all towards a critical mass. 
that we, 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 we praise and we say well done to all people involved. I think it's, uh, you mentioned that 66% of people in the UK don't have uh, a particular opinion yeah. or like a, a, a say on this. One thing that I found interesting uh, between, for example, my own Instagram feed, because I think, as you said, a, a big part of this right now is the, is the, the, the live stream nature of it. Um, when I look at my own Instagram feed versus, for example, the Muslim Vibe feed, um, they're very different. So when I'm on the Muslim Vibe account, there's a lot more of those images that have that uh, warning on top and you have to kind of click to see the real or the picture or whatever it is and every single post is just absolute death and destruction and it's it's horrific my my feed personally has that kind of stuff in there but there's also a lot more football yeah and there's a lot more other things going on um and so it makes me think about people that don't for example that aren't connected through the muslim faith for example to the palestinian cause or the opposite their feed is giving them the IOF, the Israeli Occupying Forces yeah. feed. No, but I, I, I think a, a lot of people don't see anything necessarily. So it's interesting. I mean, on this, this is a slight tangent, yeah. but on this, um, I have a Threads account, right? Threads mm-hmm. is like the Twitter that Facebook made or Meta made. Um, I don't follow anybody. Um, and whenever I go on Threads, the timeline that I see is is basically a a, a, a pro Zionist mm. timeline. Um, considering I haven't signed up to anything, there's absolutely nothing that I've done. I've, I've no, I rarely I don't engage with the app, but whenever I get a notification on Instagram, I click on it, and what I see is is it's a different world, yeah. and it makes me think that, like you say, right, that the narrative that people are seeing. I think for anyone that. Um, for example, maybe doesn't agree with us, with with supporting the Palestinian people, I would invite them to spend a week on our Instagram timelines. Yeah. And in, in seeing the content that we see, um, because it's it's quite uh, scary, you know, it, to, to think like when I when I see what I see and then I see the response in the media, I see the, the, the Pierce Morgans and everyone talking about it from like a proportionality perspective. It's it's beyond laughable at that point. I don't point. know about you. I, I actually do, I, I actually you do do a lot of research into the opposite side. So my timeline is filled with sort of the extreme rabbinic understanding. Sometimes the the Ben Shapiro's of this world mm. and a lot of sponsored content. And I end up watching it, and then it becomes part of my loop, part of my algorithm. And eight out of the ten things on my you know feed is just madness. And that, but that gives me an insight into what they're seeing, into mm. what many people are seeing. I mean, another big problem here is that social media companies, particularly over the last 10 years, have been heavily lobbied by groups like the uh, ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and other pro-Israel and Zionist groups. They even have members of Unit 8200, which is a uh, an intelligence organization within the Israel Occupation Forces that engages in uh, you know, cyber uh, terrorism tactics and blackmailing tactics against Palestinians working in these social media companies. You even have a member, former member of Unit 8200 working now in the Labour Party. So they have had a huge operation of not only lobbying social media companies to take down pro-Palestine content, promote pro-Israel content, but they also have people who work for this intelligence branch of the Israel Occupation Forces embedded in these organizations so we shouldn't be surprised uh, and obviously some of them are better and worse than others you know x formerly known as twitter 
is a li little bit better in terms of uh, you know the, the variety of the content you see on there. Uh, all of the meta-owned platforms like Instagram and Facebook are much more censored. It's very difficult to even post uh, pro-Palestine content on those platforms without getting you know shadow banned or having restrictions imposed upon you. But you know this hasn't just come out of nowhere. These algorithms have been designed in that way to broadcast pro-Israel content to uh, suffocate pro-Palestine content, uh, and so it's not organic. And this has been a trend that's been getting worse each time Israel has been engaging in these uh, you know, bombardments. And of course, this is quite unprecedented. But in 2021, uh, you know, that was a, a departure when um, there was a sort of uprising in, in Gaza and in the West Bank. There was a huge uh, campaign by the Israel government to lobby Facebook, Twitter, etc. And before that, and before that, and it's just been getting worse. And now we're in this point where it's very difficult unless you're plugged in you know, and you're directly following these accounts to ever see their content. Mm. You know, it's, it's not just the algorithm. Um, individuals with large followings are systematically deleted. So we have a, a, um, a mutual friend, Sayyid Hussein Maki, um, from here, but he's living in Lebanon at the moment. And he's uh, posting about, or on Instagram, posting about um, resistance content. And about two weeks ago, his page was deleted. He had 70, 75,000 followers deleted. So he contacted some friends at Meta and asked them for the case, what happened? And they said to him, this isn't an algorithm. This wasn't non-human behavior. Someone above, above, above has stated delete and the case is closed. There's a password protect on his case that the employees of Meta could not go into his case because someone came from above with that authority to delete his account. Wow. He's opened up a new one. And actually, by his own words, his account doesn't allow him to like, doesn't allow him to share. He's allowed to follow. But there's restrictions on him by his name. So the extent of the, the campaign, again, and this is why it's so important to share. You talked about BDS. BDS at the moment, the way in which it's working is a failed campaign. You also talked about the protest. The third element to what I'm seeing on the ground is the extent by which we've been able to bypass the traditional legacy media and state media through our own personal accounts. And I think that should be praised as well, because had people not done that, had we not had journalists on the ground in Gaza telling us what's happening, we wouldn't know. And I think this is an important part of the conversation as well. So I, I was I was going to move on to, to BDS as, as an action that people are taking right now. You called it a failed campaign. It, it failed in the sense that we've not managed to make it a central part of our organization's movements, personal movements. Um, yeah, we, we'll talk about it. But I, I, don't, I don't think we've been successful in BDS, in yeah. boycotting products, divesting from products, or even calling for sanctions. Um, so yeah, I, okay. So the, so the DS side is what's really lacking. There's a huge amount of knowledge, I think, on boycotts and you know products we should be boycotting. Yeah. <clears throat> Even if they aren't necessarily effectively or, or boycotted or done so in a widespread way, but as uh, Sheikh Jafar is saying, I think that you know, uh, are we really calling for sanctions? I mean, has have any Western governments put sanctions on the on the uh, on Israel? Uh, have we been engaging with our own institutions? You know, if we have, if we're part of a retirement fund, for example, you know, are we calling for where we're putting our pensions in to uh, divest from 
uh, investment in Israel? Are we calling for our universities potentially for at that age to divest from investment in Israel? So I think this is where there's been a lack of focus. It's really just a boycott campaign in many mm. people's minds. So so just on that, um, Sheikh Jafar, we had a call the other day and, and when we were talking about briefly about BDS, I mentioned uh, Puma. Yeah. So so Puma have have uh, ended their sponsorship of the uh, Israeli Football League, um, and that has been celebrated by BDS activists as a win. Uh, d- do you both perceive it as that or not? In their statement, they made no acknowledgement or suggestion that their contract was coming to an end off the action of people who have been engaged in boycott. Mm. So obviously that could have been a consideration. But that's not been mentioned. So I personally can't wave it as a flag of success. Um, but they, they, they never would. Well, if they, you, you can actually see that many a time certain organizations, when they think that there's going to be um, some capital gain for them or some fiduciary gain for them, then they will waive certain projects. Like at the end of the day, you're talking about in West Asia or the, the Muslim world, more than a billion people approaching one and a half billion people. One and a half billion people broadly, you could potentially get the weight behind into your company by saying, we stand against occupation and apartheid. Mm. I would go out and buy something, even if I don't need it, I would go out and buy something from Puma. If they said to me, we've broken it, our contract, or we're ending it, not renewing it on the basis that this is apartheid. Even that, forget occupation genocide, just the minimal bar that human rights organizations all acknowledge, more or less acknowledge, Apartheid. I'll go out and buy something Puma. They could leverage a billion people. I, I, the counter, not- there's a counterpoint there, which is that <clears throat> uh, many of these companies, which uh, are heavily embedded in, in Western countries, uh, particularly in the United States, have to take into account that there are anti-BDS laws. So yeah. if they mm. say that they've done something because of uh, the boycott movement, then potentially they're risking themselves into hot water. So. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's it's quite suspicious that after this uh, very long protracted period, Puma is finally taking this decision. I would say that I'm sure you know, even if they haven't acknowledged it, that BDS must have uh, been a, a huge uh, factor in that because we've seen other companies being boycotted, like Starbucks, uh, and the effect of that, particularly in West Asian countries where you know there are Starbucks laying empty yeah. almost. Uh, you know, this had a huge impact on their share value, uh, and ultimately, it's, there's a cost-benefit analysis they have to make. Uh, as uh, I think, Sheikh Jaffer, what you're saying there in terms of the market in West Asia, uh, that's a very important consideration because even if these companies are based in Western countries, they still have to try to sell their products to people all around the world. And are they going to necessarily endanger that just because of this one? You know, illegitimate state. Yeah, just, just to circle back for a second, Amar, you um, you mentioned you made mention of the the B part, the the boycott and the DS not being as um, thought through or, or enacted on. I think it's worth just discussing this for a brief second because I feel like for every every time, every few years, we have um, things happening in the Middle East, specifically with regards to Palestine the talk of boycott, the talk of BDS comes up. For a lot of people, um, they might not necessarily know what that means. You just, you know, you know that the the, the standard companies that are uh, allegedly or actually supporting um, Israel in, in whatever way, 
um and and that's about it and people will will have a, a little list of companies that, oh you can't you can't you, you have to cancel your disney subscription for example people are saying now um but i think not a lot of people necessarily fully understand uh where this all kind of comes from and and what the divestment and the sanctions part of it um is because right now as i mentioned more and more people are are boycotting more and more brands off the back of what we're seeing on social media and off the back of how people are are feeling about everything that's happening but can you um i guess uh, elaborate a little bit more on 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 the latter parts and maybe even talking about the apartheid uh in south africa and, and what was what happened there well i think that ultimately what we're trying to do through this strategy which is multi-pronged is trying to create tangible and material costs now often the bds campaign has failed to do that it's failed to do that because you've had people too few people engaged with it and the action being too sporadic too thinned out so someone's boycotting this product and no one else is boycotting it <clears throat> or you know there's one campaign calling for sanctions or there's maybe on one university campus there are students there organized trying to uh, pressure their universities to divest from investments they may have in Israel arms companies or within uh, the state of Israel. Uh, and so it doesn't build up to this critical mass that Tom Sheikh Jaffa was using to, to actually create costs uh, or high enough costs to the point where these companies or these institutions think, OK, we better pull out from here. We better not support them. Uh, and also in terms of um, putting sanctions, of course, this is a, a realm of government. You know, it's all we've try to get governments across the world, across the Western world, to support a ceasefire. Some of them have reached that position, but most of them haven't. So let alone, you know, if they can't even ask, you know, the, the state of Israel, pressure the state of Israel, which is their diplomatic ally, to stop this genocide of uh, the people of uh, Gaza and the rest of the people of Palestine, you know, how are they going to get to a position where they're, uh, you know, implementing sanctions? So... I think it's a case of trying to work out how we can build that critical mass. One of them is education. As you say, I don't think most people know uh, really what the divestment and sanctions part of it means. Have we got, you know, is the Palestine Solidarity Campaign or other uh, campaigns who support Palestine across Britain, are they that effective on university campuses? Are they really bringing this knowledge to their students? M many students, if you talk to them, they don't know that their own universities are investing in not just uh, Israel but in arms companies. If you go into workplaces or trade unions, you know there is. I think there are six million members of trade unions across Britain. Are these trade unions, which claim to be on the side of working people and you know against imperialism, and many of which have taken pro-Palestine stances, are they going into workplaces and are they telling um, uh, you know workers to campaign on these issues? Are they having broader uh, sort of efforts in that respect well they're not so there's work to be done in terms of these institutions and holding them to account who claim to be uh, in support of the boycott divestment and sanctions movement actually taking action i mean my own union unite the union which is the largest union i believe in britain and ireland has an official position in support of bds but during this entire onslaught has done nothing uh, in that respect so uh, I, I think that it's 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 one thing to talk about apartheid and to recall back to the 
uh, situation that happened in South Africa, of course, there was that critical mass that was generated uh, in terms of um, countries sanctioning South Africa uh, movements and you know the trade union movement. I remember the National Union. Well, not I don't remember because I wasn't alive at that time, but I remember hearing about the National Union of Mine Workers uh, having its pension funds divested from you know South Africa. Uh, but you know we're in a kind of different era uh, right now because at that point there was a different global context there was a cold war and south africa was not just defeated by boycotts and all of these other kind of things it was defeated militarily on the ground it was uh, humiliated in angola it was humiliated militarily in namibia uh, it had cuba uh, an anti-imperialist uh, country at that time helping to support um, these countries militarily against South Africa. And so it was a cacophony of factors that ultimately led to South Africa uh, or the apartheid system in South Africa's downfall. So, you know, we have to be thinking about it in that way in terms of Israel as well. It's not just going to be boycott, divestment, and sanctions bringing mm-hmm. it down. There's going to be so many other factors that have to go into uh, bringing down uh, oppression in that era. I think we also of the got the, the challenge that <clears throat> on an international scale, many so-called Muslim countries or Muslim-majority countries have normalized ties with Israel. So Turkey, Bahrain, the UAE. How can the ordinary, how can the ordinary Muslim divest from something that is going to be the cost of 50 quid or a thousand pounds compared to states and oil-backed states mm. who are actually going the opposite way and normalizing, not just shaking hands behind the screen, but kissing them on the cheeks in front of the world to be able to see. But we have to do our bit. And I think where we've lacked, and I said it's, it's a failed campaign, what I meant by that is that there seems to be um, individual actors just doing what they want. You won't go to Starbucks, you won't go to McDonald's, fine. But there's not a concerted campaign to target a business and say this for this year is going to be our dedicated focus up and down the country. For example, um, HSBC has increased its share ownership in Lockheed Martin by more than 500% in recent months. Lockheed Martin was the supplier of the bomb on Al-Shifa Hospital. Remember when we were talking, the whole world was talking about Al-Shifa Hospital and then, hey, they bombed another 40 hospitals and we lost track of the first one. That's So if you've got money in HSBC, you might say, well, I want to pull that money out, but you have a thousand pounds, he has 3,000 pounds. It's very little we can do, but unless, again, there's a critical mass that focuses its attention, this year we're doing this, we won't actually get anywhere, I don't think. And I think this is where the BDS movement, or the B of the DS movement has to go. In terms of the S, uh, I just want to give a shout out to our friends in Yemen because they've done the only real sanction work around the world and they've stopped, um, you know, potentially several percent of global cargo trade, Mm. particularly through the Strait of Mandeb, where um, Israeli cargo ships have been going either from or to Israel. And they've said that, sorry, no more, you're not allowed to use our waters to be able to do this. And uh, that's a huge achievement. If more countries took that sort of stance, this would be over within weeks. As in the state, this, the economy of the occupying state would be over within weeks. It's not difficult to achieve. So I, I also wanted to 
I guess, Amar, this this little segment is more directed at, at you and, and your kind of background. Um, so I personally, looking at um, this notion of, of people protest and, and, and mass public opinion or whatever else, I personally feel that um, the democratic system in this country um, isn't geared towards democracy. And what I mean by that is you vote in an elected official once every five years, obviously with our colorful history recently, we've had more general elections um, you know, than, than I can remember. But every five years you vote somebody in um, and then for five years you're at their um, discretion basically. They can, they can choose to support, not support, to act, not act on, on uh, individual things. And you have to wait until the next general election to be able to bring them out. And and just preceding the election the year before is when they'll start going doorstepping and talking to people and trying to win favor again. Um, but this, for me personally, the system just feels uh, ironically undemocratic. Um, and, you know, you were previously very much involved in party politics in the UK. And now you've kind of shifted away from that. So I wanted to to just pick your brains a little bit as to to what that journey was like. So firstly, being involved with the politics, and then why you decided to move away, um, and 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 yeah, what 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 governed that decision making for you? <clears throat> well, so there's quite a bit there. So I've tried to just you have you of... have two minutes to <laughs> reply. So. <laughs> um, well, I mean, when I was involved in the Labour Party, uh, you know, it was a period of time in which quite in an unprecedented way in terms of British politics, if you go back and you read the history, if you read people like Ralph Miliband and parliamentary socialism and the, the things that he, you know, things that, uh, you know, if you look at the history of the Labour movement in particular, uh, it was completely unprecedented in terms of the capacity of ordinary members of the party to try to affect its direction, affect its policy, uh, and to change its stances. So, you know, for me, that was kind of the norm. It would kind of seem obvious that I can go to a party meeting, I can raise a motion about anything, including Palestine. I can debate that, get my hopefully get my uh, point across and convince people. And hopefully that can make its way up the, the, the chain, if you like. We can go to party conference. I, I went to four party conferences under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership i think actually uh all of them but one uh and you know two of those i was a delegate i could vote on policy and it was an incredibly kind of exhilarating thing to see that what you're you know as an individual member you can try to affect change but i came to the realization after you know going through the motions for a few years that actually Whilst there seems to be this veneer of democracy, in reality, it doesn't seem to translate into what the MPs actually do. Because the MPs in any party are really a law unto themselves because they've been elected to parliament. As long as they go uh, at the beginning of parliament or any point really and swear their allegiance to the monarchy, then they are entitled to their salary, which I think is now something like £86,000 before tax and national insurance. And they don't even have to turn up to vote. They could literally just sit there until the next general election and they could receive their uh, money and do nothing. They didn't have to answer to their constituents. 
don't have to write a single email, never even turn up to the parliamentary you know, chamber. So, wait, so really, they, they don't they don't actually have to turn up to anything, basically. Is no, and, and there are some MPs who who at the moment, this very moment, are not doing that. Someone like Peter Bone, for example. Nadine so, Doris for a while. Nadine Doris, exactly. So, uh, you know, we have a completely broken system where the MPs are. Uh, really largely unaccountable and this is then institutionalized in the way that these parties work so there was a slight change uh, to the way in which mps were selected under jeremy corbyn but largely it remained the same under him as it did under tony blair and as it remains today which is that the people at the top of the party machine pretty much get to dictate who stands as a candidate for the labor party and it's the same in the conservative party pretty much it's the you know, Conservative Party central uh, office that gets to decide who stands as a Conservative Party candidate. We know that these are the two major political parties. They're the two major political parties because we have a first-past-the-post system, yep. which is a form of democracy in which essentially the two you have two very big parties, uh, one on either side of the political spectrum, and so you know minority opinions or opinions that may be shared by a sizable minority, maybe even 10, 15% of the population, are completely quashed. So you have these two major parties who pretty much get to decide who stands as a candidate. And so the people really who are choosing who our elected representatives are, beyond the people who go into a ballot box and they put an X next to a particular name, are really a handful of people in the country, a handful of people who sit in Conservative Party Central Office and the Labour Party head office. So... And then when they're elected, as I said, there's the problem of then trying to get them to accede to the demands and the pressures of their own constituents because, one, if they don't want to do anything, nothing can really compel them to do so unless they're recalled or you know they're suspended from uh, Parliament. Can, can I interrupt reason. you for a second and ask a question? When, when did you... So it, it's interesting because what I said at the beginning, you're basically echoing that, but with actual substantial uh, weight you know, behind what you're saying. Um, when did you realize this? Like, when, when, at what point in your journey did you go from, I want to get into politics and I want to be able to make a change, and party politics specifically here, um, to being like, actually, this whole thing is, uh, to summarize, a farce? You might not see it like that, well, but... I'll no, no, I, well, I think that I had to get from the point of understanding the way, the way in which the political system is rigged. Some people say that, you know, that democracy is rigged, you know, there are people saying, "Oh, if you go into a, a to vote at election, make sure you take a pen instead of a pencil because they'll because rub off they're your choice." Rub it off. Yeah. I don't think that our democracy is rigged in that way. I've been at I've been at counts. I've seen ballots being counted right in front of me. Yeah. I don't think that there are you know there are very secure processes in doing that. I don't think it's rigged at that point. It's rigged well before that. It's rigged in terms of who is allowed to become a candidate, who is allowed to be active in public life. Uh, and when you see some of these restrictions firsthand and you see incredible people who work hard for their communities, are great activists, but they can't be selected as a candidate because they said X, Y, and Z about whatever in the past or you but know. So, sorry to think but but the the, the the democracy part of it is they can run as an independent, right? They can stand as an independent, yeah. but because we have a first past the post system, yeah. Uh, it's very difficult for them to to be ever, able to. Of course, no, 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 I get it. It's, but it's but what I'm saying is, there is a there is a, a facade. If we can say, like you know, Sheikh Jaffer can run for prime minister and and could become prime minister. Not that anybody wants that, but <laughs> not that I want that. <laughs> he would have to. Be, he'd become prime minister if he had three hundred and twenty five or three hundred twenty six other MPs. 
yeah. on his side. That makes it impossible. So right. it's, it's, it is, I mean, it's really incredibly built, it's, it's baked into the system that you cannot change it in any substantial way because the people who are in the political parties, you can say, well, people in the Labour Party should be able to pressure their Labour MPs. People in the Conservative Party should be able to pressure them and then it can affect government policy. But it simply doesn't work like that. The members of the parties are just there as you know leafleting fodder. They give donations. Uh, they think they have some sort of purchase and input into the way the, the party goes. But really, it's the MPs who determine everything. And it's 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 baked into the system that those people and then people you've got the whip as well and, and other institutional forms of crushing democracy or free thought and so on. I I'm I want to ask you Sheikh Jaffer a question on this, but I I don't want to get too sidetracked. So I'll ask it, and I I do want a relatively short. Am I allowed two minutes as well though? You, uh, yeah, I mean I give him a bit more than two minutes. I think no. So <laughs> so what I was I remember when when we had a general election a while ago. I think you actually wrote an article on the Muslim Bible, you wanted to, um, about uh, who we should vote for. Yep. So so it was, a, it was a case of, do we vote for the lesser of two evils? And I think it's, it's kind of yep. caked in this whole thing around the two-party um, system that we have. It's either Conservatives or Labour. And which one do you align with? Which one do you think is going to do, let's say, the least uh, harm is probably who people would vote for. And it's almost like you want to, if you want to keep out the Tories, you vote for Labour. Um, and and I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the time you were arguing voting for the Green Party. Do you remember this? Um, it could be that we're mixing up ideas here. Okay, it fine. It could be. But okay, so so, 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 so no. So actually, it was more that from the Islamic perspective, this is we I'll... should not be voting for the lesser of two evils. Okay. It might have been in the context of the US election at that time. Yes, um, yes it Biden was. Between Biden and Trump, yes. I think. Yeah, yeah, my apologies. I humbly su submit that in America, people are even less politically aware and insightful than they are in Britain, uh, especially the Muslim community. And they're wrangling with these questions all the time. Um, so I think my article was the you're impermissibility right. of voting for the lesser of the two evils. Yes. Um, you're not obligated to vote. And if you don't find someone who stands for justice and truth, you don't need to support corruption. So this is what I wanted to ask. Yep. Um, if And again, it's, it's a bit of a loaded question. But if we take Palestine yep. as as the, the, the topic that people are deciding to vote based on, and a lot of people, you know, the Muslim census that came out, a lot of Muslims said they wouldn't be voting for the Labour Party yep. again, for example. Um, we live in a in an imperfect democracy. I think we can all agree on that. Where it is a, a two party solution. It's either Labour or the Conservatives. Now, if we see that both of those parties um, don't uh, make a good account of themselves when it comes to Palestine, um, which we've clearly seen through Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak and just generally voting in in Parliament, um, is it a case of like from a from an Islamic perspective, should we be morally abstaining from voting or is there still that duty upon us to vote but vote for an alternative like wh where does it all st how do you reconcile the pragmatic reality of living in in a in a political system which impacts our day-to-day -day lives versus having our uh, god-centric ideals and morality 30 seconds if we take said amar's assumption first that effectively these votes do not translate into either uh, moral power or political power 
then I do not condone lending our vote to things that only then reinforce a system of corruption. Because the moment you go out and vote for the corruption, that you've normalized it, you've participated in it, you've, you've made it part of the legacy of that. I would rather find ways to either undermine that system, change that system, or to work outside of it and actually try to be a moral force in the areas that we, that we actually want to be in. Generally speaking, at the moment, the Muslim community is not a moral voice on this country. Like We're not doing anything to undermine the types of things and greeds that are systemically violent in society today. The banking system, the extent of the, the, the exploitations on people, there's no Muslim voice or system that imposes itself to try to stop that. No regulation. The 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 the, um, uh, the penal code, or rather specifically the, the the prison system, and how Islam principally doesn't condone people in prison once rehabilitation. There's no Muslim um, voice that tries to change these things. I would rather us start there, than actually putting our time and efforts into a system that by Sayyid Ammar's account, is broken. And I would call for that. But we're not there yet. We're still a third-generation immigrant community. We're still thinking that we have to work within the system as opposed to breaking the system down. We will mature through it. And eventually, inshallah, we will become a moral power on this community. But we're not there yet. So to be annoying, mm. how, 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 how does one vote in the next election? Uh, when... when, when um, Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader. I personally voted for him. That's the only time in my lifetime I voted for any candidate because I saw him as a moral conscious, as a moral voice for the country. Mm. Since then, I've not, before then and since then, I've not found someone that has led me down that road. So in the absence of someone with such moral conscience, I don't condone voting or leaning into this system that is only there to choke you. I would rather undermine it and work outside of it in spaces where activists and people and organizations can actually do better work. And I have a slightly, <clears throat> I would I would largely agree with that, but I would also say that uh, it's important to look out for those small opportunities that may arise at the next general election in which there are people standing on platforms that are explicitly pro-Palestine, you know, calling out yep. the Labour Party, Agreed. calling for justice, speaking at suppression, uh, in strategic areas of the country where they may be able to prevent either a Labour or a Conservative candidate getting into office. Can you identify which areas people should keep an eye out for with such candidates, independent candidates or party candidates that are genuinely a moral force in their city or their town? I would say that <clears throat> actions are currently being uh, taken to try to stand candidates uh, in those constituencies where there are uh, either majority Muslim populations or large Muslim populations in order to try to garner their support. Places like Leicester, places like, uh, you know, Bethnal Green uh, in London, um, places in Manchester, Birmingham. So I think in those areas where we have lots of Muslims who are politically active and can lend uh, these candidates their vote, we're likely to see some independents run in those areas on the you know on the specific ground that they want to try to defeat the institutional party so personally i think that 
that's really the only time I would bother voting. In my constituency, I'm not going to vote. There's, there's not going to be a candidate like that that's going to be capable of, of winning just because of the way the demographics are. Uh, I'm completely with Sheikh Jafar. I think that it's worth trying to not waste so much time on the electoral front because in many ways it's very difficult to shape it. There are so many other areas and battlegrounds where we can leverage our you know support and the fact that we have uh, you know uh, a large amount of muslims in particular area to you know uh, try to change policy whether that's in trade unions or whether it's uh, in, in other in other spaces on university campuses and elsewhere so uh, i'm glad i asked the question because that's that's really interesting insight from both of you and it's it's a bit frustrating because that's almost like a, a, an entirely separate um hour plus conversation we could have but I, I i want to but i i don't want to get distracted away from um the, the kind of conversation uh, that we wanted to have today i think the final area that i wanted to kind of explore is i personally feel like the involvement that i've had in um specifically on on palestine in the last few weeks has been so so pre uh coming back to doing the podcast um i was telling you on the phone the other day that it's the first time in a long time that i felt very helpless mm. i felt like all i can do i'm i'm just almost like a a civilian if you know what i mean in this whole thing and i can go out and protest and i can post on my social media and and that's about it i don't have any means of you know, like like a platform with the Muslim vibe, there is a, a means of amplifying your voice, of reaching more people, helping shape the way that people understand um, the Palestine conflict, the actions they can take, and and really kind of galvanizing people in that way. And it was a, it was almost like a very kind of humbling experience um, because I just I felt really helpless. And and it's weird that a few days after telling my wife, oh, I wish I could, for example, do the podcast again. Um, I caught the call up and, and now here we are. Um, and, and it's great because I feel like we can have these conversations and that people will listen to this and then start reflecting and, and we can start shaping and people can start getting involved in things that you're mentioning um, and and contending with the, the different notions that we're discussing here. But I think the question is, um, what more can we do? So... Um, the response when I asked about protests and BDS, I think was interesting from both of you. And, and there's there's a lot to take away and kind of unpack. But I look at, for example, um, climate change activists. And it's a very obviously different um, crisis that they're tackling. And but, but at the same time, their, their means of tackling it is very different as well. So you'll see people, uh, you know, blocking motorways and and gluing themselves to the floor and all of this kind of stuff it makes headlines it makes the news and suddenly it becomes something on the agenda to be discussed now it's a completely different situation so i don't think it's helpful or easy to look at them side by side but i think uh it would be worth uh maybe sheikh jafar starting with yourself like just just um your thoughts or like an ex exploration on on what more can be done when we say what more can be done, and you gave the example of <clears throat> direct intervention was, or protests. I was going to say that wasn't meant to be specifically leading with regards to taking those actions, but just, yeah. Uh, yeah. But if you say, um, if you want to make a comparison, those sorts of um, activities are being modeled 
and adopted by people who are trying to get the Palestinian cause across to the mainstream either mainstream media or across to the to the masses. Mm. So for example in um California a couple of days ago there was a group that uh, s- sat on the 110 freeway blocking traffic for the morning. That's very similar to what ex- ex- extension rebellion would do. Or for example um at Google um headquarters in the Bay Area they um did a die in so they kind of lay down under you know white sheets um as if it was what their coffins their, their their burial shrouds to say that Google by its support for the Israeli regime they are causing mass murder so you're seeing that more and more direct intervention is being taken by Palestinian activists who try to um push the boat when it comes to either you know a ceasefire or further to be able to actually say we no longer want occupation at all this raises the interesting question which i think where you want to go from the islamic perspective and from the legal perspective yeah. how do we how do we understand that and how do we n- navigate that so from the islamic perspective we we start with a minimum expectation and then the the maximum the ceiling as to where we can go the minimum duty according to islamic scholars is what's known as jihad at tabeen now i know that's a scary word jihad but just please don't you know we're not going to get sanctioned or anything just you know for, for raising that word the word jihad means struggle now, whenever you raise a jihad there is always an opponent so for example if i say jihad in nafs i'm struggling against myself it means the opponent is me it's it's my lower base desires that i'm fighting against so jihad at tabeen means a type of struggle to make clear the truth away from falsehood we live in an era of mass disinformation which we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast we need to be able to make clarity on the things that we find to be truthful and sound jihad tabeen is the minimal duty of this time according to many scholars to be able to engage directly in again in an opponent trying to make clear so that means tackling disinformation going you know against the media going up against personalities engaged in dialogue and debate even through the protests that we've been talking about that raises attention in ways that ordinarily wouldn't be uh, undertaken what is the maximum level that we can go to according to islamic law direct intervention where we would talk about breaking the law in a very specific or limited way that tries to be able to stop harm from occurring or try to stop a greater problem that is out there or trying to do something that raises a greater attention to a mass public are we allowed to do this in islam can you give some examples of what that kind of action that, might be uh, can i sit in the middle of the motorway or the freeway blocking traffic with a banner saying free palestine ceasefire now for example can i break into Lockheed Martin or Elbit Systems and try to dismantle or destroy weapons that will be used in the mass murder of people in Gaza tomorrow. Am I permitted in Islam to be able to do this? So the starting point is that from our perspective we have to follow the Sharia, right? And part of the Sharia is to implement justice and to get rid of oppressors and tools of oppression no matter what 
we have to do to be able to do it, including breaking their property, confiscating their property, forcing them to surrender. This is all permissible within the framework of Islam. There's a narration from Imam Ali alayhi salam, uh, one of the great caliphs of the history of Islam, the first Imam. Uh, he has a narration where he says, the true judgment of religion is to take back the rights of the oppressed from the oppressors, to support the weak against the strong and execute God's laws according to their proper ways and courses, which will set aright God's servants and his lands. So the judgment of the Sharia is to enforce those things. The second issue is that where we don't have Sharia law, we're not in a position to be able to make that implementation. Which means that in Islamic law, we defer to a secondary ruling, which is famously termed that you have to follow the laws of the land. land. So for example, in this country, can't break the law. So the hukm al-awwali, this is sort of jazz, jazz language for those people who are not you know, uh, so accomplished in the Arabic and legal thought. The primary ruling is you have to commit to justice, bring back rights of people to whatever extent is required to enforce it. Where you cannot do that, you have to live according to the laws of the land. Where can I break that? The scholars have a deep research in this area and they say the following. Number one, we are obliged to try to uphold the organization of a society. If anything is done to break the organization of a community, the, the traffic laws, uh, you know, safety of people, it's not permissible to do that. And this would be one impediment that stops us from being able to do direct intervention. Number two, it's not the role of the jurist, the traditional Islamic jurist to say, when should we break the law and when should we not break the law? That's the role of specialists and experts in the field. So in the case of climate change, if climate scientists say, we have to do direct intervention, do a sit-in in this university, for example, then we're permitted to be able to do it. Or in the case of Palestine, if you need to block the road of this um, uh, arms factory to stop it from getting weapons out, do it. Then we're allowed to be able to do it. This is the second opinion. So just explain that bit again. So if... If, uh... if experts in the field... Yeah endorse an action or say now is the time to raise the bar to this intervention mm. some jurists will say that's who we follow because they're on the ground they know what's even occurring. if it's even if it's counter to the law of the land yeah to break the law of the land in this case according to islamic law would be permissible we go back to the first ruling where you mm. have to implement justice you have to implement rights so let's just say right now power action palestine action is a organization that's rooted in especially looking at the arms trade and, uh, and, and these weapons uh, companies, they will say, as an example, tomorrow this weapon is going to be taken to this airport to fly out, to be dropped. Mm -hmm. If you sit in the road, you will stop it. If the experts and the specialists say that's the duty of the moment, Islamic law would adhere to that and say they are in the right, we, they know what's best, we can follow that. That's the second potential condition that we have to wrangle with. The third raises the bar even higher. Not only do we have to get the opinions of the specialists, we also have to get the jurists to also agree. That's a very hard, wow. high bar, because sadly, Islamic scholars can't agree on the time of day. So you're not going to get to that. But that's one opinion. And the fourth opinion is that if you're going to do direct intervention and break the law, 
it cannot cause harm to the reputation or the status of the Muslim community. If, for example, you wanted to bring 30 people into a business and talk to the manager and say, we are going to sit inside your business until you stop selling X product, which is going towards the Israeli occupying forces. It's going to massacre children. That's a, an illegal act. You can't do that. It's a place of business. Police will come and take you away. As long as that act is not going to harm the reputation of the Muslims, then it's permissible for you to be able to do that. These are the four considerations. To what extent does it cause chaos on the ground? To what extent do the specialists concur of the need? To what extent do specialists and jurists, Islamic jurists, scholars agree to the need? And to what potential harm are you going to cause the movement and the reputation of the Muslims? These are the four considerations. Therefore, depending on which jurist you follow, which line of school of thought you follow, you would be permitted to be able to engage in direct intervention. Now, Sayyid Ammar will bring another point in that sometimes in case law, we can actually say that I'm going to engage in a direct intervention that I believe is actually legal. I'm not breaking the law. He'll explain that, I hope, in a little while. And then that would cause another consideration for the Islamic side as to when and where I can actually participate in direct intervention. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of set you up now, so you've got to deliver well, to you. <laughs> I, think, I think I just want to preface what, what I'm going to say, which is that uh, you know, direct action in Britain, direct action and civil disobedience in Britain have very long histories. Uh, the example of Palestine action is certainly not the, the first among them. You can go back to the uh, Luddite movement in the uh, uh, between 1811 and 1812 where you had textile workers breaking into factories and smashing up uh, looming machines because they were producing uh, shoddy mass-produced textiles uh, that were driving down wages of you know textile specialists you had the kinder scout mass trespass in 1932 where previously uh, in britain you didn't have a right to roam anywhere there were private landowners who fenced off large parts of the countryside and you couldn't you couldn't access those lands and so ramblers these walkers uh, on mass i think hundreds of them decided to trespass uh, kinder scout in derbyshire and uh, several of them were arrested not actually for trespass because trespass isn't illegal uh, in criminal law but they, you know they got into scuffles with some people and i think five or six of them were arrested and prosecuted for uh violence you then had of course one of the most famous the turn of the century turn of the last century the suffragette movement women fighting for their rights uh famously they many of them didn't do that peacefully uh, there were people who you know tried to thousands of women who tried to storm the house of commons uh, there were uh, people who engaged in uh, other types of action. So Emily Wilding Davidson, very famously at the 1913 Derby, threw herself in front of the king's horse uh, and was killed. They disrupted meetings. There are so many ways in which people throughout history, in Britain in particular, but of course in many other countries, have engaged in uh, direct action. In many cases, although not all, breaking the law, suffering consequences as a result of that. And then you find that history ends up kind of, and the law itself ends up coming to agree with them. There are new acts of parliament that are passed, uh, potentially in case law, judges come to a different take on how they deal with certain issues. In the Palestine action scenario, I mean, Palestine action came about in 2020, and they, as Sheikh Jafar was 
mentioning of you know gone into arms factories have occupied them have smashed up millions of pounds worth of uh, equipment but uh does that translate to criminal damage you know criminal damage is uh, unlawful of course but section 5 of the criminal damage act uh, provides the defense of lawful excuse so this might be a bit too jargon filled but hopefully if i come to the end of this point you'll be able to i'm, I'm with you'll, you so you'll, far. you'll stay with me so there's a, a defense of lawful excuse to defend life or property so you know if you have destroyed um someone's property with the excuse that you're doing it to protect someone else's property or someone else's life then uh, as long as what you've done is close enough is related enough to try to save that person's life or property then you had every right to do it you know it's not unlawful to commit criminal damage so for example if an ambulance is coming and their paramedics coming to a house and they've got to break down a door to get access to somebody are they going to be prosecuted for doing that? No, they had a defense of lawful excuse, not that the police would ever prosecute a case like that, but just a general sort of analogy. In this case, you have Palestine actionists saying, we're smashing up this equipment because we know that this is going to be used on Palestinians to kill them, to destroy their lives and their property. And so far, to a large extent, they have been incredibly successful in presenting that excuse when they've been prosecuted. Uh, and not being sent to prison. In fact, some of the ways in which they've been targeted now are not under uh, criminal damage. They've been accused of a conspiracy to blackmail uh, and other you know, try types of offences they try to bring in uh, that are very rarely used. I mean, conspiracy to blackmail was used you know, over a decade ago to sort of violently crack down on the animal rights, militant animal rights movement. Now it's been sort of resurrected to to go after Palestine actionists because they can't really get them under the criminal damage. So, ju just, so just to, to clarify, uh, just so I haven't misheard what you just said, you're saying that people, Palestine Action, have, have broken into uh, arms facilities, have destroyed uh, arms or, or, or stuff within there, have then been taken to court and have defended themselves by saying we were doing this because we know that these things were going to be used to cause harm to others and therefore... And, and then the judge has um, acquitted them. I don't know if that's the so, right legal term. but So these are jury trials. And so what happens is that uh, the role of the judge is to determine whether the excuse is... Th th there's enough of a nexus, there's enough of connection between the excuse and the action. Mm. So all the judge has to determine is, okay, you've smashed up arms factories and you've said that this is because you believe they're going to be used to uh, destroy someone else's life or property. That seems to be reasonable. There's some sort of a tangible link there. So I'm going to let the jury decide on that. And then it's okay. up to the jury, a jury of one's peers, to determine whether they acquit you or not. And in all of these cases, when it's been put to the jury, the jury said, yes, we acquit them. Um, but there's been one case, I believe, in which the judge said, no, it's not. there's not enough of connection between what you were doing uh, and the and the act, and so they didn't allow a jury to consider it. Uh, and in the in the current case uh, that's happening, in which eight person actionists are being prosecuted, they're being accused of conspiracy to blackmail. So not even criminal damage. So they've had to try to invent a new route to kind of go mm. after these people because I think there's a very you know, you know there's a pretty plausible argument that if you are going literally to smash up an arms factory where those arms more than likely are going to be used to kill people, then how is it not lawful to do that? You know, so uh, 
but the difficulty arises in the fact that it has to be proven after the fact. So you don't actually know whether it's unlawful or not until you've gone to court and a jury has said, yes, it wasn't uh, unlawful. So wow. that this this is some of the difficulty here because if, if, if in the Sharia you can't break the law of the land uh, and you don't know whether you've broken it until you've actually gone and done the action, there's a bit of this a, is a, bit a, of a gray, gray area, area created. Some of the contemporary scholars do need to be able to look into. There's very few... Uh, researchers that are published on this but I think this is a burgeoning conversation and the reason why I say that is because external to the Muslim community in the examples that we cited there are many many people that are engaged in civil disobedience or in direct action at the moment and I actually have many Muslims that are coming to me and saying we want to engage in these things are we permitted what is the scope of the permission that's why I said there's a minimum bar and then there's a ceiling so unless we actually wrangle with this in the context of things like the Palestinian cause and the sort of circumstances that we're finding ourselves in now, um, we're closing down conversations and we're not the type of people to do that. We want to have open conversations. Um, and then we also need to bring this to the forefront of people that if you are thinking of engaging these things, here is the Sharia view, here is the legal view, understand your duties, your moral duties, and also the consequences that you could find yourself with over the next five years of your life. I think that's it's a very, very pertinent the, the, con the, con the consequences point, I think, Shijabra, is very important because, you know, I think everyone has to figure out as an activist what your role is. Not everyone's role is to be going and smashing up arms factories. Some people's role is different. Some people work in the media. Some people work in law. Some people uh, give very impassioned speeches in which they're educating people at demonstrations. Uh, some people do a variety of those things. But, you know... I think the key thing here is, uh, as, as you're saying, Sheikh Jafar, is the acceptance of consequences because you could do this and you could present your excuse uh, that, you, you know, under the Criminal Damage Act, but you could end up being in a situation where you're prosecuted. And so then you have to be able to be in a position where you can live with that. Some people are able to take greater sacrifices than others. So that's an important consideration, I think, for every activist. I'm personally not one of the people who engages in direct action, but I hope one day when I'm a, a barrister, inshallah, I'll be able to defend those people who have done those actions. That will hopefully will be my role. Yeah. So everyone's going to figure out a role for themselves and what they do, but we can't be doing nothing. Everyone's going to do something. I think everything, something is always within someone's capacity. When we talk about <clears throat> the historical examples of these cases, the suffragette movement, uh, as an example, it's, it's actually created mass historical change that we have inherited and benefited from until do you see that as direct action grows either in this moment of this era this phase of the genocide of the palestinian people or in the post ceasefire world that will come in a few weeks time we imagine what do you see is the potential of direct action in facilitating genuine change in this country or through this country based on the examples that we have in history is there any relationship between these two or is it completely segregated because suffragette movement is 50 percent of the whole country palestinian action it's a very minority of people who are all you're supporting people all the way over there <laughs> that we don't even know who they are I think it's uh, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, these uh, actions obviously can result in, in, in different changes in policy. So the suffragettes, they uh, were successful in 
achieving um, new acts of parliament. The uh, scramblers that I was talking about, the Kinder Scout, they achieve new acts of parliament, not immediately, but later on. I think that you could see uh, in the legal realm, in terms of government policy, certain changes, because at the moment, uh, it's up to, I think, the British government, uh, I can't remember which department it is, that's able to approve export licenses for arms. You can produce arms but you, if you have a license to do that, but you can't necessarily just sell them to any old person. They've got to be supposed human rights considerations and everything like that. And yet, the way the export license system works here in Britain is that really there's no consideration for that. Pretty much, by and large, they're able to just sell weapons to whoever they want to, whether it's to the Saudi regime, whether it's to uh, the uh, regime in Tel Aviv. So one change could be that actually Britain's arms industry goes into decline. If, uh, if Elbit Systems, which I think has nine remaining sites in Britain, if they're able to be shut down, if they lose millions of pounds worth of defense contracts, and these weapons aren't able to be produced here in Britain because of fear of being targeted by activists uh, and because of legal changes, then you could have Britain's arms industry in 20, 30 years time being non-existent. Maybe, maybe Britain doesn't have an arms industry anymore. That would be a huge change in Britain because Britain is one of the biggest global sort of arms uh, exporters in the world, you know, apart from the United States of America. So I think these sorts of changes just in this narrow field of Palestine action could create that change where in 30 years time, children are growing up hearing in the past, well, in the past, you know, Britain used to be this vile arms trader, just like in the past, Britain used to be a slave trader and things like that, that we view as sort of a, uh, you know, in, in, incomprehensible nowadays. It could be put. I was already convinced, but now I want to. I want to go find Lockheed Martin. <laughs> Mr. Martin. I, I think it's, it's it's really really interesting when you when you think about history and you look at things like the suffragettes movements, the civil rights movement in America, for example, and and these acts of uh, civil disobedience um, that that have occurred, and I guess how they're framed. To us today, so when you when you learn about Rosa Parks on the bus, that was a, a, a positive thing that she did. It was something that was transformational. Um, likewise with the suffragettes, we study them in school as like, a, look how great this is. They, they, they were liberating women um, in the UK and 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 you know bringing us forward into the twenty first century kind of thing. And and it always makes me think about how it would have been viewed at the time. Um, so even historical figures, how they're viewed, um, Malcolm X as, as an example, how Malcolm X was viewed at his time by his contemporaries versus how he's quoted so freely and so regularly by um, activists and scholars and everybody else. Um, and I think that's, it, it's just really, really um, fascinating. Uh, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like when, when, the greatest example is Nelson Mandela. At that time, he was considered to be a yeah. terrorist. It's always the the, the the archetypal example. At the time, he was considered a terrorist. Perfect, I think yeah. even on the UN list till today, mm -hmm. he's still considered a terrorist. There is, there recently, is sitting, was removed off that terrorist list. There are sitting recently. British MPs that um, have said very, very strong things about Nelson Mandela back in the day. Yeah that are still around today right. and that still haven't recanted but or But today apologized. everyone is forced to laud him. Yeah. <laughs> having to just look backwards in history as if suddenly he's a different person. What happened was these people are forced to say these things mm. because the change was made. And I think that's very much part of the conversation we're trying to have at the moment. That what, what is the means? Yeah. And what is the, the, 
the, the ceiling by which we can participate in making this change. So there's two things. Firstly, I think there's there's more that can be said on this, and I'm going to invite you guys to to very briefly, if there is anything specifically on this thing you wanna you wanna mention, and then after that, I'm going to ask you guys for some book recommendations. Um, this is something that I'm doing this time around because I've recently really got into reading, and I think it'll be really helpful. It doesn't have to be necessarily related to this specific topic, but stuff that you think would be engaging and interesting for our audience. And I can put um, links in the description where people can buy them from Amazon or wherever else they want to get them from. If you're boycotting Amazon, that is. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no. So anything you wanted to cover on this specific topic that we're discussing about um, direct action or intervention um, and then book recommendations. I mean, the only thing I would really add, and I think I've hopefully I'm not laboring the point, is that politics... Uh, can occur through various different forms. Some people view politics just as something that they see on the news and at election time and voting, and that's essentially all that politics is. For me, politics is much broader. Politics can be everything from what I do in my trade union. Uh, It could be efforts at lobbying. It could be engaging in uh, trying to correct media bias through launching complaints at Ipso or Ofcom when I see things in newspapers or on TV that shouldn't have been presented in that way. There are so many ways in which we can engage in politics on university campuses, uh, in schools. Uh, It doesn't matter what your age is. I mean, you can engage in politics at your allotment. There are so many things that you can do uh, in your life. And we have access, uh, you know, between all of us, and not just here in this room, everyone, we have access to so many spaces where we could actually do things and we don't do it because we don't see that as a political arena. Uh, And maybe not every area is a political arena, but many areas that people don't engage in are political arenas that we should be engaging in work and trying to change policies and trying to, uh, you know, uh, get them behind uh, political causes that we support. So, and also, as I say, everyone has to figure out what they can do in those areas and in other areas. Uh, so politics is a very broad thing and there are and also different political actions and strategies are also very broad. So we should be a bit more open-minded in thinking about what we can do. I um, feel like from the perspective of the Muslim community and probably our more immediate audience, <laughs> the role of the pulpit has to change and make politics, economics, liberation theory as a staple diet for what comes from the content of, of, of the khatib or the imam that's, that's speaking. There is so much disinformation and lack of political knowledge, political awareness and insight in the Muslim communities that we need to start raising that organically. And that includes by the congregations asking for political events, more imagination from their imams, and also pushing back from the sort of fear that is being placed upon the Muslim community through things like the prevent strategy, things like the Charities Commission and the sort of powers that are being gifted to them at the moment. This is a concerted effort. If we're going to raise a generation of young Muslims that are engaged socio sociopolitical awareness, where is that going to come from? Is it going to be reliant on BBC to tell us our thoughts or on party politics to to tell us what we think about the world? If our imams and religious institutions are not creating that space, 
then we're going to be gobbled up and the next two, three generations are going to be either the same as they are now or even worse, lost to the sands of time. So I would like to make a call for our um, organizations, our institutions and our imams to become much, much more well-read, well-versed and aware um, in, in political activism and, and, and participation. Thank you. Um, books, both of you, either of you, whoever wants to go first. Well, I think I was asked to think of three books, but uh, I may take a, a bit of a liberty there. So I always <laughs> say any book really by uh, Noor al-Din or I think he goes by Noor Masalha in, in English, uh, are incredibly important. The Politics of Denial, very important in terms of understanding the history of the Nakba, what preceded it and uh, what happened immediately after. Also, Palestine, a 4,000-year history by, by Noor uh, Masalha is very, very important. Um, another book I recommend is The Invention of the Jewish People by Shlomo Sand, in which he prevents a revisionist case against what we understand to be Jewish history, that you know, the, which is the Zionist history, which is that you know, Jews are today a race of people who uh, inherit the ancestry of uh, you know, Jews who were supposedly expelled from the land of Palestine and that there's a Jewish diaspora returning to the indigenous homeland. He breaks all of that down and essentially says that this is a completely fictitious way of looking at history. And one which may seem controversial, but I think is incredibly important, is uh, The Jewish State by Theodore Herzl. We have to get into the minds of our opponents. We have to understand the basis on which they, uh, the colonial basis, and you know, you'll be surprised reading it how open Herzl is in terms of his racism and his thinking at the time. We have to understand how they have constructed this colonial project. Uh, his diaries are of, of further reading, but reading Herzl is is very important in terms of the Labour Party context uh, and understanding how anti-Semitism. Uh, and the issue of Israel and Palestine was used to sort of dismantle anti-imperialists and attack Muslims and Jewish anti-Zionists. I very much recommend these two I've got here, 10 Years Hard Labour by Chris Williamson, who's a former Labour MP. I did actually used to work for Chris Williamson, so maybe a bit of a conflict of interest, but incredibly important in analysing how the Corbyn project was derailed and weaponizing anti-Semitism by Asa Winstanley going into detail, in, in particular, to some of those issues. So. I, I did. I, I gave a warning. I was going to take a bit of a liberty there. And I, I mean, did, we've so. got more time. If you want to go through your whole library at home, feel free. <laughs> but um, thank you. No, that, that's that's really uh, helpful, Sheikh Jaffa. Um, I'll take a liberty as well. Then. Oh no, surprise. Just, just because I think we all believe in principle of equality. Um, but <laughs> I'll, I'll choose two traditionally Islamic texts and then two non-Islamic texts that I found beneficial. So um, the book Imam Ali and Political Leadership. Um, draws together um, the entire political uh, modus operandi and guidances from Imam Ali, uh, alayhi salam, who is of course one of the leading lights of Islam, and uh, tracks the way in which he dealt with a plethora of uh, political turmoil, um, uh, land theft, land grabs, um, wars, all those things that took place, um, and the justice that he sought to implement. Um, Famously, he is titled The Voice of Human Justice, actually, by a, uh, a Lebanese Christian. So someone who wants to study Imam Ali's political life will find tremendous treasures in that book. So it's Imam Ali and Political Leadership. Um, a second book is by um, Imam Khamenei, who is the supreme leader of um, the Islamic Republic of Iran. There is a book called Jihad al-Tabiyin, 
So if you recall in the discussion, we said that there's a minimal duty to be able to speak out, to clarify. And he's written a book called Jihad al-Tabin, um, the struggle to make clear the role or, or, or the way in which we're trying to deliver across to the masses the ideas and the principles that we hold. So I would start with those two books as, as, as grounding ourselves in Islamic political theory. Outside of that, probably one of my famous favorite activists is by the name of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, a wonderful book called Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. And I think her way of presenting the notions of liberation and the way in which it can be applied into our contemporary time are, are as well as I've read from any other person. She's a lifetime of activism, a lifetime of um, academia as well behind her. And then a fourth book is called Political History Unlearning Imperialism by um, Aisha Azoulay. And she premises her work on the idea that the, the number of institutions that have been created in order to um, in order to make us live through the lens of imperialism, even if we don't accept imperialism, just the amount of institutions that force us to see the world through those lenses. Particularly, she picks up on things like museums as well. And this is a famous conversation amongst, you know, anti-liberation or, um, or sorry, uh, anti-imperialist movements of, of how the museum is actually part of um, uh, imperialist um, models. And she goes how she goes through the method of how we can intellectually break those cycles that are upon us. So these are the four books that I would recommend. Well, thank you, um, thank you both. So I'll be honest, like this conversation, I was worried I would feel out of my depth because both of you have a lot of knowledge from different perspectives. But I've I've just about managed to to keep along with you. So thank you for being able to present all of this in a way that I can actually engage with and and not feel like the dumbest person in the room no so, it's the opposite well, thank you to amar for speaking to us as you would a child making sure you held our hand through very um, complex but no th this is like it, it's always tough i think when we talk about this kind of th these kind of things especially when we talk about politics and um i it's easy to feel apathetic it's easy to feel like there's not really anything we can do but i think despite um the discussion we had about mainstream politics and party politics, I think there is a lot of hope um, and there's a lot of things that people can do and engage with. And I think I, I encourage people to reach out to, to both of yourselves, whether you have the time to reply is a separate issue. Um, but, you know, if, if there are things that people can and want to be doing, um, I'm sure you'd be able to kind of uh, steer them and guide them in the right way. Um, but yeah, again, thank you both for making the effort and for for being a part of this conversation. And I think... We'll wrap up. Um, so, yeah, for those of you watching, thank you very much for sticking around. Slightly longer episode, I think, than we've uh, done in the past. But I do want to have slightly longer conversations and, and make sure that we're able to talk about all things we want to and spend time discussing the ideas. Um, if this is the first time you're, you're listening and you've made it to the end of this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, follow and share this with somebody as well. Um, and that's it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, inshallah. Take care.